Good morning. My name is Henry Michael. I am the pastor over students and families. I'm excited to be with all of you today. We've got a fun subject today. One of my favorite subjects from one of my favorite passages in scripture to talk about. Uh, we're talking about the devil this morning and we're in uh, Matthew chapter 4 uh, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start um, opening it there. And the reason why I like talking about the devil so much is because it's such a confusing and weird topic. We blame the devil for everything in our culture. We say the devil's in the details. If you're not good with details, the devil's there, right? Um, we blame the devil for doing bad things. I hit my brother. The devil made me do it. It's our cop-out answer. The devil's in the technology. I don't understand technology, so the devil is in the technology, and it messes up. It happened this morning. It happens every time I do anything. I Usually it's because I just didn't plug in my phone. Real life example, this morning we woke up and the kids had thrown up like 15 times last night. And I'm actually going to blame the devil for that. Um, we look at everything we don't understand in our culture and in our world and, we, and, and if we don't like it, we say, you know, the devil must be behind that and we blame the devil for all of these things. But our culture also has their version of the devil as well and it's usually something silly. Uh, one of my favorite SNL sketches, uh, Will Ferrell is this bumbling fool of a devil who tries to teach Garth Brooks how to sing and play music. It's funny, if you're young, probably not going to watch that with the kids. Uh, the other picture is this demon baby uh, that maybe sits on your shoulder and makes you do bad things. Our culture kind of makes the devil look silly, not to be taken seriously. As one extraordinary theologian says, um, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. He is uh, Kaiser Sose uh, from a great movie. But wherever we land functionally in our lives, we oftentimes functionally, whether we understand it or not, live as if the devil doesn't really play a big role in our lives. We'd say something like, ignorance is bliss. If I don't understand it, ignorance is bliss. But ignorance is not bliss in this situation. In 1846, there was a Hungarian physician, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Ignaz Semmelweis. And he joined in this hospital, and he was taking care of this hospital, and there's a problem in this hospital. There's two wings, one with doctors and medical students, and the other one was midwives. And, and something crazy was happening is that almost every single or at least an extremely high percentage of women were dying at childbirth of this just horrific fever disease thing that would just almost immediately after they give birth, they would die and their babies would die as well. And so he's trying to figure out what's going on, why is this happening, how can we fix this situation? He did a lot of really crazy things uh, to try and figure out how to stop this from happening. Till one day, one of his friends, not a woman, uh, died of the same disease, and he started to realize that something more was happening. It wasn't just women giving birth. This could happen to anybody. So in one wing, we have the doctors and the medical students. In the other wing, we have midwives and the women who are giving birth. And what he started noticing is that the doctors were working on cadavers. And when they'd work on a cadaver, they'd go over to the other wing, and they would deliver babies. And this was before washing hands was a thing. They didn't have germ theory. They didn't know anything. And so he started recognizing this, and, and he thought it was the smell, because uh, it smelled bad. 
And so he started telling the doctors, you need to wash your hands. And so they started washing their hands and the mortality rate of women giving birth dropped almost to nothing, overnight. And you'd think everyone would be super happy about this new development, right? But people, like, they didn't have any reason for it. They didn't have any idea of what germs or, or bacteria was. And so the doctors were offended. They're saying, oh, you think we were the ones who killed the babies? And he was not the most tactful person and, and made some powerful enemies. He ended up getting fired from his job. And he was so angry and so frustrated by this whole situation because it was just right there in front of him. He ended up going crazy, ended up dying in, in an insane asylum of the same disease that he was trying to fix. It's a really sad story. And these kind of stories uh, are all over the place. And a lot of times we like to talk about them and we like to say, hey, wake up, people. It worked. Just do it. How dumb can you be? But in our modern technology, we can point to what it is and we can say, like, this is terrible. Wash your hands. The answer was right in front of them, but it was so small, it was unseen. They thought, how could it have any impact in our lives, even though there were people dying? Now, we're very similar uh, with our enemy as well. When it comes to our enemy, the devil, and spiritual warfare, we try to push it off to the professionals, the pastors, or even the nut jobs that are going to talk about it. For regular people, this is just something that, hey, it's confusing, it's weird, I don't really want to talk about it, and it's not going to really have a meaningful impact in my life, but just like hand washing, we have everything we need right in front of us to fight our enemy if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. This not only affects our present reality, but it affects our eternal reality as well. But before we jump into our passage, Matthew chapter 4, uh, please join me in the prayer on the screen as we pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds as we jump into the scriptures. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Holy Spirit, make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the way of Jesus, the bread of heaven. Amen. We're in a mini-series on Matthew where we're primarily sticking in uh, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And so we're going to dive into that. We're going to read that because we don't want the Bible to be a mystery and we don't want your place uh, in God's story to be a mystery either. So take a look at the screen. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. All right, we're camping out in this passage because there's a lot there, and we've been talking about this a lot lately. And so we're, we're taking different elements of the story and trying to make it uh, hopefully clear to a lot of us. Um, last week, we talked about the point of this passage. And the point of this passage is to show that Jesus succeeded where everyone else has failed. And so he, he faced the temptation, he faced the devil, and he came out on top. And that's not the story for anybody else in all of history. And that's why the story is beautiful and it's compelling. And G- it's Jesus' unique role. But the, one of the other main characters, the devil, is our main study today. He's called Satan, the tempter, the devil. And we know Jesus to a certain extent, but we also need to understand our enemy as well. And not just understand our enemy, we need to understand his tactics. That's the most important thing. So we're going to, in our sermon today, uh, go over the enemy's tactics. We have two tactics that he's using in here, and then what are we going to do about it? And our first tactic that we need to understand when, we, when we're reading this passage, but we understand in our, in our everyday lives, is that the devil is a liar, He's a liar. He lies about who God is, who we are, and what the good life is all about. And as I was preparing this message, it really struck me that we have another liar in our midst. And he's your senior pastor, Pastor Henry. He's my dad, by the way. Some people didn't know that. Um, and so I, you guys may, if you've known him for a long time, you know him as this crazy liar sometimes. But I know it intimately because I grew up with him. But again, some of you guys are new, so I don't want to give you guys a wrong impression of him. He's more of a teaser than a liar. Uh, He has a lot of fun teasing kids and people, and um, it's funny when it's not you, but (laughs) I don't want to paint, uh, well, also, I looked on, for whatever reason, I looked on uh, on Google, so don't test me on this later if you're a Hebrew scholar. Uh, How how do you say teaser in Hebrew, and it's leonin, and so if if you guys can all join me in this effort to call him Pastor Leo from now on, I think that could be pretty funny. Um, so there are parents in this church who have told their kids, you are not to trust anything he says unless he is on the stage. That's the level of teasing that he does to kids. Give you a couple examples growing up. Um, in our old church, we had this big attic, and he would bring us up there, and he'd turn off all the lights and says, there's a big, hairy ape man that's living in the corner, and he would tell us these stories, and they would terrify us. <laughs> he wouldn't tell them, he wouldn't say just kidding either. Like, this is something that he just kept going with uh, for years. Uh, after the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids came out, um, he says, you know, I have one of those in my attic. And he goes, I might use it. And... Uh, I believed him. And he said, oh, it was just, I didn't want you to grow up, and I don't buy it. He's just trying to terrify us. Um, It wasn't a camping trip with us unless kids were left in tears from his stories. um, There's probably a lot more that are repressed that will come out in time and counseling. But there was one of the other ones is he, in the mornings on Saturdays usually, Uh, the light would be coming into the kitchen. It would reflect off his watch onto the wall. And he goes, guys, that's Tinkerbell. And you can ask her any question. Of course, it has to be a yes or no question. And so we'd talk to Tinkerbell for years. I was young, so don't judge me. But eventually when we got, we were old enough to need a dad that we could trust. Um, 
he would institute this safe word. And it was this word that he would say, if you said this, you had to stop teasing, okay? It was, give me your word. And so if we were like nervous or scared and, and say, hey, give me your word, is that true? And he would have to, he'd have to stop and he'd say, yeah, I was kidding. You know, that's, and same thing with us. Like we, if we tried to tease him, we'd, if he said, give me your word, we would have to be honest with what was going on. And so the game became, how convincing could we be without having to ask, give me your word? And the game still is going. Um, <laughs> with Satan, who's the ultimate liar, there is no safe word for him, unless you want to get corny with me, and the only safe word is God's word, right? But next week, that's what we're going to be talking about. And as you see in this passage, God's word is being used by this liar. And so even with God's word, we have to be really careful. And so let's try to understand our enemy here for a second before we jump into this passage again. Uh, we normally confuse the name of our enemy with the function of our enemy, so for example, my name is Henry. Um, my function among many is pastor, father, and husband. So my kids call me Papa, right? Uh, some of you guys call me Pastor. And my wife calls me Honey Buns. None of those are my names. She doesn't really do that, so don't get a <laughs> weird. But that's similar to our enemy, because you, if you read this passage and you pay attention, there's three different names being used for our enemy. And just as we're going to start calling Pastor Henry, Pastor Leo, um, he doesn't have a name, but he has a function. And we see that his function throughout all of scripture is to distort God and his work with us and his work in the world. And so what, what we see in our passage is we see him called the devil. That means slanderer. Father of lies. Here's a couple verses where you can see it. In other places, there's a ton of places, so I just wanted to give you a couple examples. The second one, we see him called tempter, and that's pretty self-explanatory. And the last one is Satan. That means accuser. He functions in all these ways throughout this passage and, and really towards us as well. So we need to understand what we are up against. If you turn your page over, you're going to see a chart. It's called the temptation chart in your sermon application guides. And we're going to be steadily filling that out through the passage. So it's going to feel like you're going to have to jump back and forth. But I just wanted you to be aware when we start filling in some of these things, that's how we're going to do that. And so um, what we see here, if he's a liar, what is he lying about? So in verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And we can say that's a pretty weak temptation, right? But what's happening here is he's saying, look at you, you're hungry, you're tired. Wouldn't a nice, warm, divinely made bread make sense? And he's trying to lie to him and saying that God's not concerned with your concerns, so you just make the bread. You're obviously alone. You need to make the bread. Why not? You can do it. So do it. In verse 6, he says, throw yourself off this high place, on this off this temple, because the angels will come and they'll catch you. And again, that's a, a, strange, uh, a strange one, but, but again, you got to look. He's been in the desert all alone. He's not experiencing the relationship that he's had with God for all of eternity. He might want to feel just God's comfort and his love. 
And this is the lie that God is distant and that he's uncaring and that he doesn't care about your loneliness or your pain. And then verse eight, we see that the, the devil is saying, if you just bow down, you can have all the nations of the world, you can have power right now. And that's the lie that you're in charge of your destiny. Take it, do whatever you can to get the power. Take the easy way out. And we see, he's not just tempting him, he's lying about who God is, who we are in relationship to God, and what the good life entails. This is a full assault on God and his relationship with us, but it's the same assault that he throws at us every single day. We need to not only know that our enemy is a liar, but he's an effective liar. And so if we know his lies, we know that tactic, why do we still constantly fall into temptation? Why do we still constantly sin? Which brings us to our next tactic. And that is that he appeals to our disordered desires. SB Nation has a podcast called It Seemed Smart, where they spent two weeks talking about the Tour de France and how cheating is basically a staple in the Tour de France. It's like the pinnacle of cheating in sports. They spend two episodes on it, and here's the description of the episode. Uh, it says, there's cheating, and there's the then there's the Tour de France. An event so rife with cheating that riders take rat poison, nitroglycerin, and chloroform, and that was considered normal as far back as 1924. Part one looks at the event's winner, Maurice Guerin, who established a tradition of ruthlessness from the race's inception. Part two looks at doping and what happened when it all finally went too far, even for the Tour de France. Cheating is all throughout sports. It's not just in one sport or one event. When you think of cheating in baseball, you think of steroids, Barry Bonds, maybe stealing signs from the Astros. If you think about football, you think of Tom Brady and Deflategate or, um, or them stealing signs as well. I tried to find a Green Bay Packers example, but I couldn't find one right away. <laughs> if you think of basketball, you think of the refs and how they threw games. If you think of soccer, you think of how FIFA is corrupt. Everybody wants to win, and winning is not a bad thing, but when it turns into a disordered desire, that's when it becomes dangerous. A disordered desire takes something good, a God-created desire, and turns it into the ultimate goal. Our desires become so big we cross boundaries to get it, to gratify ourselves. It becomes more important than God. Another way to put it is it becomes an idol in our lives. Winning is good until it gets too big. Then it becomes disordered. And if we don't have a framework for that, we're going to uh, mistake disordered desires for healthy desires and healthy desires for disordered desires. Our disordered desires go deeper than lies. So when we look back at our passage, we're going to start filling out more of our uh, temptation chart. And so what, what we see here is that in verse 3 is that the devil, he's saying, listen, God's not concerned with your concerns. And when we play that out and like, yes, provision is good and we should desire to be provided for, but how often do we take it into our own power and it becomes too big and we want to be provided for in our own strength. We need to fix things in our own strength. We worry about paying the bills. We worry about our kids getting into the right schools. 
Oftentimes we even create debt in our lives just to look like we're extra provided for. God's word is not enough and God's provision is not enough. Verse six, we see uh, in, in him jumping from that, from that high place, we see that he's saying, listen, you can experience God now. You can experience his, car, his care now because God is distant. So do something special to really experience God. And it becomes a disordered desire in our lives when we start latching on to people in, hell, in relationships and even political parties where we want to seek meaning, we want to be known, we want to be loved, and we will do anything we can to get it. And we do it usually at the expense of a re- relationship with God. Verse eight, he tries to lie and say, hey, listen, you can have it all now. As if Satan has that kind of power. And it beca- power is not a bad thing. Many of us have power in this room. But power becomes distorted when we will cut corners to keep that power. When we cheat, steal, destroy to get that power. We seek the easy way out and look at ourselves rather than looking at God and using his power in our lives. So a, a natural question, um, we have these temptations, these lies, and these disordered desires. How is Jesus experiencing these things? Jesus is God, right? And so does he have disordered desires? Is he, was he close to failing the test? Because if he failed, the Bible does not need to be written. And so that seems like, what's going on here? How is Jesus experiencing these temptations? And our classic verse for this to understand that Jesus does feel these temptations is Hebrews 4.15. It says, for we do have a high priest, and that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And we could say, yeah, of course he didn't sin. He's God, right? But he's also human, And if you've been in church for a while, we know God is fully, or Jesus is fully God and fully human. And that's something maybe we've heard a lot, but how does it play out in this passage? How does it play out at all? It's a very confusing uh, line of thinking. And so I'm just going to help us out here for a little bit and just see if we can answer that question. We have to do a couple non-negotiables. Non-negotiable number one is that we need to understand that Jesus is God and God cannot sin. If God could sin, it would be a wild world that we would live in, untrustworthy. Everything would be upside down. We have to believe God cannot sin. And so the logic playing off that is that Jesus, being God, cannot sin. We got the God side figured out. Now, the human side, we also need to know that humans are sinners. Paul even explains there's no one righteous not even one. So if he can be fully God and fully man, how did he not sin but still have the ability to empathize with our weaknesses and our temptations? And so I got an illustration that helped me think of it and hopefully it's helpful for you guys as well. Imagine there's two weightlifters. And I'm gonna put some names to it, okay? Uh, one of them is Henry, Michael. And the other one's name is Kyler Albert. He's our middle school director, okay? Um, now, I can't 
squat this, so I'm not trying to make a statement here. Okay, let's say there's 500 pounds on the squat bar, okay? Now, Kyler, it's his turn. He's a soccer player. We all know where this is going. He puts the weight on his shoulders. He steps back, if he even gets that far, tries to squat, crushes him, okay? He's still alive. He's just hurt, okay? <laughs> now, it's my turn, and I go up to the squat rack, lift it off, perfect form, right back, put the weight away, okay? I succeeded. Kyler failed, okay? That's the point of the, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> both attempted the squat, both felt the weight, but only one succeeded. And that's similar to what's going on here. Jesus not only experienced the temptation in his limited human form, but he, and he also felt the weight of temptation, yet he did not sin. And because of that, we have hope. But that's just part of the story. We need to know, where do we go from here? Do we just try harder to recognize the lies, try not to do bad things, and hopefully God's going to accept us and love us? Or is it about awareness, being aware of our disordered desires and the lies that can happen? But awareness can't be the key either. We need something more. We need a deep, right relationship with God. We need to be connected to the Father. And so we looked at how the devil uses tactics, but Jesus has a tactic of his own. And it's largely ignored when we read this passage. But I think once we look at this, and if you uh, do the lifelong work it takes to live as Jesus lived in this passage, it will literally change your life, 100%. And that's the reality, we have a fight on our hands. And so we need to know how do we fight. These days, mixed martial arts has gotten so popular, it's been said many times in many places that you should never get in a fight with anybody, not just for the moral reasons, but you don't, you don't know, even if they don't look that impressive, how they can absolutely destroy you, okay? Now, I've never been in a fight before, but I have been punched in the face by accident and my eyes watered. And uh, I did wrestle in high school, and so like within a certain subset of rules, I could probably win a fight. But um, I do have a friend, uh, his name is Will, who I can physically beat him up, okay? I can dominate him, okay? I wrestled, he didn't. And so I tested that theory and uh, tackled him, and I pinned him down, and I thought it was just for fun, but um, he didn't. And he uh, took his thumbs, and he stuck them in my eyes. <laughs> Meaning, I tapped and he won the fight. <laughs> I didn't even know you could do that. Like, I, I didn't know, and I still would never do that. That is something only Will would do. <laughs> now, the devil is similar. The devil is similar. He's going to do low blood. He's going to hit you where it hurts. And although some of us might know something about physical fighting, we're up against something much more sinister. This is like a spiritual eye gouging experience. So Ephesians uh, 6, 12 says this. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where our fight is, our real fight. And if that's our real fight, that means there's different rules for this fight. And the way Jesus engages the devil and the way that he fights is patterned throughout all of scripture. And and some of these stories will be familiar to you. How did the Israelites escape Egypt and slavery? Was it tons of effort and strategy? It was God, 100% God. They did nothing. In fact, they complained the whole way. How did David defeat Goliath? Sure, there's a little bit of skill there, but it doesn't make any sense. It's a little boy against a giant, armored slingshot. Doesn't make sense, but God does it. God wins the fight. If you guys know the story of Gideon, Gideon, uh, they're surrounded by an army that was described as thick as locusts. And he gets 32,000 men to rally around him for this fight that they're going to have. And God cuts it down to 300 men. And they destroy their enemies. Doesn't make sense unless you know that God fought. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, kind of the heart of this fight is some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Jesus, by trusting God, is giving us a blueprint for how we fight our enemy. It's called living in the kingdom of God. And he spends the rest of the Bible or the rest of Matthew teaching and showing what this kingdom looks like and how to live in it. And many of us have heard the kingdom of heaven before. And oftentimes, some people think, are confused by that statement. Some people think, well, you know, the kingdom of heaven is where I'm going to go when I die. Uh, And so I'm looking forward to that day when I get to be in the kingdom of heaven. So to describe it for all of us to be on the same page, I'm going to, I've said this to our students a lot, but here's uh, one pastor coined it this way. The kingdom of heaven is life with God under the rule of God. Life with God under the rule of God. This is a really, really simple statement, but if you think of the implications of the rule of God in your life, it's really profound. It means you're trusting God by ordering your lives now as if God is in charge, not yourself. It looks weird. It feels weird. It feels uncomfortable, but it's the only way to the good life. Some people call it the upside down kingdom. The upside down kingdom means all the things that we think are good and right. The kingdom of God flips it on its head. It's called the already, not yet, meaning we can experience the kingdom of God, life with God under his rule now, but not yet fully until we go to heaven someday. God as your king shows where your allegiance is, what you find important, who you find important, how you see people and how you engage people. It doesn't make sense to a watching world. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to us, but this is how Jesus responds in the kingdom. And so let's look back at our temptation chart and look back at these three temptations. We see provision, that God is not concerned with your concerns. And oftentimes when we are experiencing this lie, uh, we start looking everywhere but God's word. We start trying to provide comfort for ourselves, provide community for ourselves. 
But the kingdom ethic, when he's looking in the lens of a kingdom, he already knows he's been provided for. He knows he's provided for through God's word. And he teaches this ethic in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 25 through 27. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink, the things that we normally worry about. About your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? We're so comfortable in worrying and, 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 and trying to think about how we're going to be provided for that we miss, like, God is there and he provides for you. God loves Jesus and he knows that because it's promised in his word and he lives in that truth. In verse six, we see that we, he's playing on God's care and saying God is distant. Look at you, you're all alone. Why don't you feel him? Seek meaning apart from God. Do it in your own power. But Jesus knows he's already comforted by the Father. He doesn't need to test God. There are times in our lives where we feel like God is distant. And so those are the hard points of life. But he knows God is near, even if he doesn't physically feel it. Psalm 34, 18, it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If he promises that in his word, Jesus is taking him at that word. He doesn't need to test him in that moment because he knows it's true. In verse eight, bowing down to worship Satan for all the kingdoms, saying that just do it, have what you want now. Jesus knows through the kingdom perspective that power comes through God in a different way. In fact, he tells his disciples in Matthew 16, 25, whoever wants to save their lives will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus' whole mission on earth was to save the world through his death. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense. But that's how he is modeling his life in scripture. So what do we do? I used to, when I read this story, and probably a lot of you guys too, um, used to marvel at how strong Jesus was. Like, man, he's been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights, all by himself. He must have been exhausted, vulnerable, and weak. And at the time of temptation, he pulled up his bootstraps and he just nailed it. And that's because I have a perspective that's not formed by the kingdom of God, but formed by my, the world or the, the way that I order my life. I'm constantly busy. I'm constantly consuming content or food. I'm distracted, so distracted that, you know, I don't pray as much as I probably should. I don't read my Bible probably as much as I should. And then I wonder why disordered desires have such power over my life. But Jesus, responding with a, a kingdom ethic, changes the whole paradigm of this passage. 
And this isn't just a one-off for Jesus. Jesus didn't spend, you know, what, 30-some years of his life just living however he wanted. He was constantly training in righteousness for when this moment came that he could respond with a kingdom perspective. And you see him training and, and living out of that training by the way that he was ordering his life in this passage. We see him in silence and solitude so that he could hear God. He was fasting so that he could rely on God. He was constantly in prayer so he could be in relationship to God. He was bathed in scripture so he knew his father's voice. Dallas Willard once said in a place that I can't find, um, is that Jesus wasn't at his weakest when the devil was tempting him. He was at his strongest because there's nothing other than God's strength that could explain his effort. And that stuck with me for a long time. Because many of us, we see these, these disciplines and we might see other people doing them or something that we used to do. And, and maybe we had a wrong vision of how we're supposed to use the disciplines. Maybe we say like, I'm not going to fast. That's just earning my salvation. Or if I fast, maybe you've thought like, oh, that'll make me closer to God if I do this, that, and the other. And, and we, we use this as an effort thing rather than a becoming closer to God. And we see Jesus was not living to gain God's favor. He already had God's favor. If you look at the verses immediately preceding chapter four before he goes in the desert and does all these disciplines, he hears a voice from heaven at his baptism saying, you're my son, I love you, I am pleased with you. Jesus is not participating in these disciplines to get more love from God. He's participating to get more God. Because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, living the life we couldn't, dying the death that we deserved, he has made us right with God if we have faith with him. We have full acceptance from God at Christ's expense. And our enemy is trying to distort that. We have a fight on our hands. And since we are limited, we need more God. Now, we talk about uh, these, this next part a lot on Sunday, so I'm not going to spend a, a ton of time with them, but it's really important to really strengthen your relationship with God and to have more God. You need to institute three practices that are essential. One of them is prayer. Reading God's word, reading your Bibles, and being in community. We talk about this every single week. And the reason why we talk about it every single week, because if you're doing anything else and you want to hear from God and experience God, but you don't know God's word or his voice, you're going to be thrown in some really strange places. You need to do these first. And so I want to encourage you all to, to jump into some disciplines that maybe push on your reliance on God more. And there's something really interesting happening uh, within our church. It's actually happening with Gen Z, which is crazy, right? Every generation's the wrong generation when you get older. These students are so hungry for God's word and transcendence and seeking something bigger than themselves, and it is insane. I we have a junior-senior Bible study that meets on Sunday nights, and we've had some of the people who have graduated and gone through that, and 
we're, our goal is to get through the whole Bible, but you know, the first, I think we've gotten through Exodus, I think twice, and um, usually we get stuck there and get into the weeds too much. Well, this year we finally got to the New Testament, and it's amazing. And so we're reading Matthew, and um, with these students, I'm like, okay, we're gonna read Matthew, and we're gonna look at it with a kingdom perspective. We're gonna look at Jesus, we're gonna see how he lived, and we're gonna live like Jesus did, or at least practice living like Jesus did, and we're gonna see how he teaches about the kingdom, and we're gonna try and transition our minds into having kingdom eyes and a kingdom lens in our world. And I said, by doing that, we're gonna do some spiritual disciplines. Like, we're gonna really devote our time to prayer for a week, maybe. And then we're gonna try devoting our time to reading scripture. We're gonna actually try fasting. We're gonna try silence and solitude. And then I went on vacation and I missed the next week and then the week after I come back and four students independently were like, hey, we started fasting this week. It's like, what? Like, yeah, they all fasting twice a week. And so they started talking about it and then other students started asking questions and then they started fasting and now we have a group of fasting kids and I didn't tell them to do it. And there's a reason why they're doing it. If you look at what kids and students are up against in this world, it is a level of anxiety and mental health that has never been seen before. And they are hungry for God. They're so hungry that they are willing to not eat, to experience him more fully. Now, the reason why we don't talk about these maybe lesser practiced disciplines is simply because most of us don't do it. Or maybe we used to do it when we were young. We're too busy now. Or maybe the people who are doing it are just too humble to talk about it. And I would just encourage you, if you're doing some of these things, share your experiences with others. They need it. In the past, I have fasted mostly for dietary reasons, and it just leaves me grumpy. Silence and solitude has always been seen in my mind as a punishment rather than a way of growing closer to God. Making time for deep Bible study and prayer has always been something I've really wanted to do, but I'm too, I ordered my life too hurried to make that a reality in my life. So I'm encouraging you as I'm encouraging myself, as I'm encouraging these students, start practicing some disciplines. If you want to experience God and you're not experiencing God, I'm not saying this in a mean way, but it's mostly or for the most part, probably your fault. And that's okay. There's grace for that. And I don't want you guys to go out here and start fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. That's not a good idea. So let's not be heroes, okay? But maybe you can start small. Maybe you can start small. Maybe uh, if you have dietary restrictions and fasting is just not a thing that you can do at this time of life, just fast from an aspect of food, sweets or something like that. Maybe start with skipping a meal. Maybe skip 24 hours just to start out and see how your desires are formed by food. Your stomach starts growling. You start thinking about all the things that you want to eat and all the, the, the things you're going to eat in the future and how amazing that is. And then you realize, oh my, I'm comforted by food and snacks and dessert rather than God. And so in that moment where you're hungry, you start praying, Lord, I want to be comforted by you, that your word is bread and that I need you. Destroys the disordered desires in your life and makes them plain. You repent and you pray and you repent and you pray. Silence and solitude. 
Take moments to listen to God. That's why I say you need to be in your scriptures before you do solitude because you need to know God's voice. And again, same thing, in si silence and solitude. And parents, I understand the, how hard that can be with little kids, but work with your spouse to, to fight for that. Because you're gonna start realizing in the silence and the solitude where your mind goes and it's like, man, I just uh, I need to check that email and uh, the selfie, look at my Bible study, you know, I, just, I gotta you know, do something, I need to be active, I need to consume something instead of God. And those are your disordered desires. And in those moments you pray, Lord, reorder my desires to you. We don't look in our Bibles, we don't see thou must fast for this long and this way. You must do silence and solitude for this long, this many days. We don't see that. We're not trying to earn our salvation here. But if you want more God, we look at how Jesus ordered his life and we do the same thing. We can. We're not going to be sinless, but it's at least going to point out our disorder, disordered desires and draw us closer to God. If you were at the most recent parent event, we watched uh, John Mark Comer's um, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and then we had a packet that talked about a rule of life, and that rule of life has a bunch of disciplines and a bunch of ways that you can incorporate into your life um, so that it's not just willy-nilly. You can say, hey, I desire to know God more and then go and do absolutely nothing to do that. And then you were wondering, why, did I, why don't I understand God? Why don't I know God more? Well, it's the way you order your life. Be intentional about that. If you missed the event or if you lost the packet, I understand it's not a, a shame thing. I'll resend it. Write parent event in your connect card and I'll send you the resources and you can work uh, with your friends, your community, your spouse, whoever it is to start ordering your life if you are hungry for God. Kingdom fighting is dying to self, dying to our desires, to our comfort. And it's gonna feel really weird and it's gonna look really weird, but it's also gonna draw you closer to God. It's gonna draw you closer to God because you're gonna realize that it's God fighting on your behalf. So be intentional about it. Schedule times of slowing down to allow the spirit to work in your life and to experience God in a richer way. We say this all the time. I'm just saying, do it. And as our disordered desires die, we die as well so that Christ can live through us. And that's not going to be a fair fight for the devil. Every week, we take communion as a way to respond and to, to look back at what Jesus had done so that we know that we have a right relationship with him based on his effort, not our own. But we also look forward to where the kingdom of God is full in all its glory. And so each week, we take the bread, remember that Christ's body was broken for you. It was broken for you, the devil thought he had won, but it brought us life. And we take the cup, which is his blood that was shed for you. So you remember. We're gonna have a time of worship and responding. I wanna encourage you guys, respond in any way that you like. We have candle lighting stations up front where you can light a candle and pray for somebody that the light of Christ is uh, lit in their life. It's a sign 
It's an active sign, not a wishful, like, whatever that is. There's prayer stations in the corner. Um, utilize that. Or just sit, pray, and sing. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you came and died on our behalf so that we can have life. I pray as we go out of this building that um, your spirit works in our lives. I pray for everyone who is mired in the busyness that life brings and the, the chaos that marks most of our lives. I pray, Lord, that we are intentional about pursuing you. I know so many of us just want more of you. Lord, I pray that we um, order our lives to do that, that you give us the strength and the conviction to do something like that. Pray as we enter into our schools, into our works, into our homes, wherever we engage in this world, that we become a light because we have a kingdom lens, something that looks different, but that leads to life. I pray this all in your name. Amen.